Please turn with me to the book, the book of Philemon. Philemon. Please join with me in prayer. Lord God, we come before thee once again, O Lord, in awe of thy majesty, of thy beauty, and of thy glory. Lord, I ask for a blessing upon the preaching of thy word, a means of grace that we know thou art pleased to use. Please use it now, O God, for the edification of thy saints, that we might know thee more, we might know thy Son, Jesus Christ, more. And, O Jesus, that we would worship thee with purer hearts, might work out our salvation with fear and trembling, out of joy, by the power of thy Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, please protect us from error. Please protect us from Satan and his devices even now, that he might not steal the seed as it falls into the heart. Lord, but thy word would be applied and used into the benefit and edification of these thy people the glory of thy kingdom and its expansion. O God, please help me, thy unprofitable servant, to be profitable as I preach, that I might be aided and effective. Lord, we love thee, we praise thee, we thank thee for thy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Your congregation, there is an old Puritan tradition that was often practiced where the Sunday, Lord's Day after a wedding, the bride would be allowed to choose the text for the sermon. And I always wanted to do that, and I have forgotten the previous two weddings, Um, but we are going to do that from now on. So I allowed Abby to go ahead and choose the text for this Lord's Day sermon, and she chose the book of Philemon, a book about a slave that is returned back to his master to serve faithfully as a Christian slave unto his master. This book is often overlooked because it's so little. It's very rarely preached on. When I was first given this task to preach on this text, I was a little disheartened, but then I, was re- I rejoiced. Because in the regular course of preaching, these small books like 1st, 2nd, John, Philemon are often overlooked and left out and neglected. And there is so much richness, especially in this book, so much richness, so much glory of Christ found in it, so much practical wisdom for Christian living. And we know that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, so we can't overlook or skip over any parts of Scripture. So, in fact, it is a great blessing that we can turn to this book today. Some background on this book. Paul is writing to a person named Philemon, or Philemon. There's a couple ways you can pronounce it. I've always said Philemon. He's writing to Philemon. His servant, his slave, Onesimus, had run, had run away, had abandoned his post, had abandoned his calling and his duty to his master. And it appears that he'd even stolen some money from him. And this had caused great turmoil within Philemon's house, to Philemon's own spirit, and even financial loss. It was a great sin, it was a great wickedness that this slave, this slave escaped and left off serving his master. 
And he goes to Paul, finds Paul in Rome, seeks help, is converted and sent back to his master to serve faithfully as a Christian now. So in this book, Paul beseeches Philemon to receive back Onesimus by the mercies of God and Christ. That's the groundwork upon which he argues that he should receive back his runaway slave. So we're going to note a few points, three today. First, the subjects that are contained in this letter. Secondly, the duties that are annexed and given to those subjects. And number three, we'll draw some applications for our own life. First, the subjects. Well, there's first the two authors, Paul and Timothy. Verse 1, he says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother. Now, in most of Paul's letters, he styles himself as an apostle or as a servant. But here he calls himself a prisoner. A prisoner. He makes himself pathetic. He reveals and recognizes his plight and his low condition. That at this point, the apostle was imprisoned, rotting away in a jail. But he was not just any prisoner. He writes that he was a prisoner of or for Jesus Christ. He had been imprisoned for his witness to Jesus Christ, his preaching of Jesus Christ. His ministry had led to his imprisonment. And this seasons his letter, does it not, with a peculiar unction of Christ. Who would not grant him the desire that he writes about? Who would not grant him obedience to his advice? From someone who is languishing and wearing a chain for Christ's sake. Think of it, if a letter were to come to you from some beloved minister or some faithful brother or sister in the Lord. And you knew that that person was lying in prison, rotting away in a dungeon somewhere. And that was likely going to die soon for their faith in Christ. I guarantee that you would be greatly moved with compassion. If you noticed the traces of rust from the fetters around their ankles and their wrists on the letter itself. And here Paul, here Paul titles himself as one who has been faithful to Christ, even unto this kind of persecution, being thrown in prison and rotting away in some cell, some Roman cell, for Jesus Christ. Such a one is worthy to take counsel from. Such a one is worthy to give aid to. He also mentions Timothy, whom Paul refers to in other places as my son in the faith. Paul had a special relation with Timothy. He loved Timothy. He raised him up, this young pastor in the faith, wrote two letters to him. And he accompanied Paul often on his missionary journeys and planting churches. Timothy was likely well known to Philemon, being a constant companion of Paul, as I mentioned. And Timothy was likely highly esteemed by Philemon. Paul is mindful to place Timothy's name also before Philemon, that he would notice that two eminent saints were the ones pleading with him to do this thing. Now, there's much wisdom in heeding counsel from a wise person, is there not? The Bible tells us over and over how we should do that. To receive counsel and to heed the counsel that we receive from someone who's respected in the faith, a strong brother or sister in the Lord. But only a fool would turn away Counsel from multiple wise people in the faith. Multiple wise people in the faith coming together. And here, Paul and Timothy are in agreement from this advice and this exhortation that they're about to give. So Philemon or anyone else would be an absolute fool to reject this counsel and this exhortation. But how often in our culture will we not only neglect the counsel of one wise person, one faithful minister... One faithful brother or sister in the Christ who's much wiser than us and has many more years under their belt. But will even reject many. Many people counseling us who can point at the same sin in our life, the same problem, give us the same advice on what to do next, and yet we'll reject it. That's a very common thing that we see in our day. We'd rather go find somebody to tell us what we want to hear. We have itching ears and we go find someone to tickle them. We can have ten wise men or women 
give us solid advice, solid advice for what to do in our Christian life about some certain issue. And yet our culture is one that will find offense in that and go find someone to tell you what you want to hear. We have to fight that. We have to fight that. This word comes to Philemon from the Apostle Paul as he is suffering in chains for Christ's sake. And that should be enough in itself. But in addition to that, Timothy is standing in full endorsement of what Paul is writing. So we have a twofold wisdom here from Paul and from Timothy. <clears throat> That's the authors. We next look at the recipients. The first recipient is Philemon. Paul writes, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer. He was a minister and a master. This letter is addressed primarily to one individual, but we'll see that it also contains others. And that one individual is Philemon. This letter was sent along with the letter to the Colossian church. So both Colossians and Philemon went together. And in fact, Onesimus was the one who brought him. This runaway slave. This once sinful, wicked person who now had been converted was the one who got to deliver the inspired letters of Paul, both of these, to the Colossian church and here to his master, Philemon. Philemon was either a prominent member of the church because it was gathering in his own home, but more likely the text leads us to believe that he was the lead pastor of the church. Verse 7 lends us to such a view. The church in Colossae would receive a letter of instruction from the Apostle Paul's hand. It would be a letter of encouragement, instruction, doctrinal purity. But also the pastor himself, who was teaching this church, was going to receive one from Paul. A personal letter. Paul acknowledges that Philemon was a faithful man. He remembered him frequently in his prayers. Verse 4. He recognized his true love for God and for all Christians. Verse 5, he prayed for Philemon that God would increase his love to Jesus and for every good work in him. Verse 6, Paul knew that he was not writing, writing to some stiff-necked person who was going to reject his counsel, but he was writing to one who loved God and loved what was good, who was a beloved follower and fellow laborer in the gospel for Christ. So Paul had great assurance in writing this letter. And that teaches us we shouldn't waste time on people who are going to reject and reject and reject sound counsel. You should admonish somebody a few times, and if they will never heed your counsel, don't waste your time on them anymore. And Paul doesn't waste any of his time here in his old age, does he? He knows he only has a few more years for the Lord, and so his time is going to be spent profitably. And in writing this letter, he writes to someone that he knows is going to receive his wisdom and his counsel and his commandments. Not only was Philemon the pastor in Colossae, he was also a master of at least one slave, Onesimus. And we have no reason to doubt that Philemon was a faithful pastor. He was a faithful shepherd of the church in his home in Colossae. Nor do we have any reason to doubt that he was a faithful and loving master to his slave. Now, slavery in the Roman Empire is not how we think of slavery in our modern day. Slavery could have come in many forms. Obviously, a conquered people could be enslaved and would kind of fall more in line with what we think of slavery. You could be sold into slavery because you have a debt that you need to pay off. Also, slavery was oftentimes voluntary. You found a prominent member in your society and you enslaved yourself to them to be taken care of by, take, taken care of by them to learn a craft, and to labor. But slaves did not simply serve in some physical labor all day. They were oftentimes highly educated. They served as teachers, doctors, tutors, and businessmen. Slaves were frequently paid, and they could even end up paying off their own freedom and buying their own freedom in ancient Rome. And if they weren't able to pay it off, Oftentimes, adoption was offered to them. They could be part, become part of the family, be adopted by their master as a child in the family. Slavery was not what we think of it as in ancient Rome. Not, com not completely, anyway. Slaves in ancient Rome were viewed and treated as a part of the family and as part of the community. 
Philemon was a faithful man. He was a minister of God, serving in the church. And so he would have been kind to his slave. He would have treated him with love and dignity and preached the gospel to him, teaching him the truth as it is in Jesus Christ faithfully. Onesimus was a vital part of Philemon's family and his livelihood. The God-breathed command to all slaves that's actually contained in the Colossian epistle that Onesimus would have carried is that slaves obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of your inheritance. For ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. And there is no respect of persons. That's Colossians 3, verses 22 through 25. That's Paul's word to slaves. Obey. Not simply to obey man, but to obey God. Be faithful in your calling. Work hard because you're working for God. And he will reward you for this service that you do. Because you're doing it to him and not simply for man. Now the Bible does not pretend that slavery doesn't exist. I know a lot of Christians want it to go away, especially in our times right now that we are in. They want it to go away. They want to pretend it doesn't exist. But the Bible doesn't pretend it doesn't exist. Nor does it condemn it outright. It condemns types of slavery. But as a general rule, the Bible accepts that slavery exists. That slavery exists and here's how it is to work. The scriptures inform us how the life of slaves was to be improved and points them to the greatest servant of all, Jesus Christ, as slaves a motivating factor for faithful service to their earthly masters. But the Bible also tells us what is to be the conduct of masters in that time. That they are to, quote, give unto their servants that which is just and equal, knowing that they also have a master in heaven. Colossians 4.1. That means they should pay him the wages that they agreed to pay their slaves. They should take care of them, house them, make sure they're healthy. Make sure they're cared for and educated if their calling requires them to be educated. And from this we learn that the scriptures always inform us as Christians how we are to live in light of our great salvation. All of us. In every sphere of life. Politics, work, family, everything. Every sphere of life. In every vocation we are given by God. Whatever our job is. In every circumstance we find ourselves in by God's providence. The Bible seeks to inform us how we are to live in light of our great salvation in each of those aspects. The Bible is not concerned with teaching us how to get out of things. How to simply just get through our circumstances. Our goal as Christians is not to bemoan our present conditions, but to humbly and joyfully receive all things from God's hand of providence. We accept God's providence, and we accept the God of providence as Christians. The Bible's concern for us is not that we know how to escape some present circumstance we're in, but that we would know how we can glorify God in them and through them, doing all things to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Philemon would receive this letter. And as a Christian master, he must act like a Christian master should. Just like Onesimus should act like a Christian slave now that he is a Christian. A school teacher, if he or she be a Christian, should act like a Christian school teacher. A politician, if they be a Christian, should act like a Christian politician. Christians should behave as Christians. It seems simple enough, but that is our calling. And we so often forget it. He's to act like a Christian master. He is to have the mind of Christ. Being heavenly minded. Setting his mind on those things which are above. Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. And his affection on things above. Not on things on earth. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. The next people that are addressed are Apphia and Archippus. It says in that verse, And to our beloved Apphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier. 
Paul also addressed Apphia, who was likely the wife of Philemon. She too, having suffered from the loss of Onesimus running away. She too was a victim. She too was the offended party. And Paul basically here pulls out all stops in addressing the need for reconciliation between these parties. The wife can often more easily be moved to compassion than the husband. All wives know this, and I think all husbands know this. We can get hot-headed pretty quick and seek vengeance. But our wives often can cool us down. The wife is often able to encourage the husband in the right direction. If she be faithful, the Bible tells us, if a wife is faithful, then a man's best counselor, a husband's best counselor, is his wife. Archippus is also addressed, and that's likely the co-pastor of the church. Again, there's going to be a lot that we're just going to have to barely touch on because there's a ton in here. The next people addressed is the church in Colossae and to the church in thy house. So to this impressive list that he's already given, Paul also solicits the entire church body, many of whom he addresses individually in verses 22 through 25. They all knew of Onesimus' sin and how it had affected Philemon. They must also be urged by Paul, and they are urged by Paul here, to show mercy in receiving back this sinful slave, back into the fellowship, back into the community. Sure, some of them had hard feelings, but they must receive him back. To them all, Paul writes in the name of God, reminding them that from God they were all recipients, because it's in the plural you, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 3. So he he grounds his exhortation to all these people in God's mercy and his grace and the peace that they have with God through Jesus Christ. And those who have received mercy from God ought to extend the same. Now we move to the carrier of the letters, both Colossians and Philemon. And that is none other than Onesimus. In verse 10, Paul says, I beseech thee for Onesimus, writing to Philemon. He was one that carried these letters. First, he was a rebellious servant. Onesimus had gravely sinned against God and his master by running away. He had abandoned his master and his master's family. Though he sat under faithful teaching and preaching in church and at home, yet he remained unconverted and he sought his own will rather than God's will and God's glory. And this teaches us to remember that a person can sit under the pure teaching of the scriptures week in and week out, day in and day out, hearing clear articulations of doctrine and its application for our life, not just head knowledge, but heart knowledge, life knowledge. And yet that person can remain unconverted. We know of many people like that. This teaches us to remember that nothing but the supernatural working of God The free and sovereign working of God upon a man can bring him to saving faith in Christ. Nothing. As long as a sinner remains dead in their sins, as Ephesians 2.1 tells us, he cannot by faith receive the love and mercy of God towards him in the person and work of Jesus Christ. No doubt we still have to labor with someone. We still have to explain the gospel sometimes time and time again, maybe a coworker or a family member. We're constantly explaining the gospel. We're explaining doctrine. But to our teaching, to our preaching, to our evangelism with those around us, we must add fervent prayers that God would open their dead eyes and cause them to be born again, or else we have no hope of their salvation whatsoever. So in addition to the sorrow that Philemon would have suffered in losing Onesimus, he would also have been affected financially, as we see in verse 18. Onesimus was likely a source of income for the home. In addition, it appears Onesimus heaped up one sin upon another and actually stole money from his master, Philemon. What's funny is that the name Onesimus in Greek means profitable. Yet he had been anything but profitable. He appears to have been a bad servant to his master in his time that he was there. And now he proved this by abandoning his master, stealing from his master, and abandoning his master's family. 
Neither did he profit from the preaching of the word which he sat under, day in, day out. He remained unconverted. So the profitable one, Onesimus, had been largely unprofitable, as Paul says in verse 11. Another thing we need to learn about Onesimus is that he was a convert. He was a Christian. He became a Christian. Paul does not merely beseech on behalf of Onesimus. No, he doesn't stop there. But on behalf of his son, Onesimus. Philemon knew Paul well, and by a strange providence, when Onesimus fled from his master, he, for some reason, goes to Rome to seek out Paul. He finds Paul thinking that Paul might help him in some way. Onesimus had sat in church every Lord's Day in the home of Philemon and had been a servant of faithful family, seeing the gospel demonstrated in word and deed before him. He frequently heard the word of God, the truth as it is in Jesus, and yet that only served to harden his heart more. He resisted the gospel and his master's God. But in fleeing from the means of grace that he sat under, this great faithful means of grace, he comes to Paul, who preaches the same gospel again to him. He couldn't escape it, could he? Preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul pleads on behalf of his son Onesimus, writing, I have begotten him in my bonds. Verse 10. Though the word of God did not birth faith in Onesimus when he was at home with his master, sitting under faithful preaching, yet it did when he was with Paul. The same gospel. By a miraculous work of God, Onesimus was born again and brought to saving faith in Christ Jesus under Paul's ministry. This teaches us that we must notice to never give up on those we minister to, ever. We may not be the direct means of salvation for some. Some of you have family, friends, co-workers that you have been trying to live as a Christian in front of, share the gospel with, pray with. Sometimes you seem to be gaining ground, and other times it seems like that ground just completely went away. You've been laboring for years, some of you. But know that you might not be the direct means of salvation for that person. But we still plant the seeds of the gospel, nevertheless. We are called to, even if there's someone else who waters it and it bears fruit. We must be faithful in doing our part. Many who resist God are in their resistance brought to God. There's many people like that. I'll say that again. Many who resist God are in their resisting brought to him. A man once went to hear John Bunyan preach. John Bunyan is the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, the best-selling English book in history outside the King James Bible. 1600s Baptist Puritan. A man once went to hear him preach so that he could mock him. So I'm going to go hear Bunyan, that old tinker, and mock his silly religion. But as he sat there in the pew, Bunyan's words were no longer foolishness unto him, but the power of God unto salvation. He went to mock Christ's gospel, but he wound up finding himself worshiping at his feet instead. Paul says that it is true that Onesimus was once in time past unprofitable to Philemon. But now that he was a Christian, Paul writes that Onesimus is profitable to thee and to me. Verse 11. A Christian is a blessing to those around him or her. We have to remember that. That as Christians, we are blessings to those around us. A kindred spirit. The kindred spirit that we share. The love that we share for Christ makes our fellowship with one another as Christians sweet. It gives us great encouragement for one another and with one another. Christians serve as a means of refreshment and pointing one another to Christ. That's why we can't forsake the gathering together of ourselves. Paul was languishing in prison. He needed someone to minister unto him. And it appears that Paul had hoped that Philemon was going to send someone. But he didn't. In God's providence, the fleeing Onesimus, the runaway slave, comes to Paul. He gets saved. And he serves as a minister to Paul in his bonds as he's in prison. Paul then tells Philemon that he desired to retain Onesimus. Meaning that I I want him to stay with me and continue to minister to me. Because I've been languishing here by myself. 
hoping you'd send somebody. Well, it turns out you didn't send this guy, but he did come anyway. And he got saved. And he's been a great encouragement to me. He desired to retain Onesimus with him, that in Philemon's stead, he might have ministered unto Paul in the bonds of the gospel. That's verse 13. So you were supposed to send somebody, but in your stead, Philemon, your servant, who now is saved, I wanted him to stay with me so that he might fill up what was lacking in your service and your love to me. But Paul obviously writes, I didn't want that to be something that's forced. I want you to give willingly to me. I want you to give willingly to me. Though Philemon did not send Onesimus, yet he still served as a great encouragement to Paul in Philemon's place. Paul had grown to love Onesimus, considering him his own bowels or heart. In verse 12, he won his soul to Christ while in chains. And now he was of much use to Paul and to God. Better off than when he started. Let us learn from this what an unknown blessing we often are to other people. Sometimes just by our presence, our spending time with one another, fellowshipping with one another as Christians, you are an unknown blessing. And often we think of ourselves as no good. I don't have anything to offer anybody. I don't have anything to offer in this conversation. I don't have anything to offer as a Christian. Except you do. Because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. You are a Christian. You are Christ. And you are a blessing to those around you. Therefore, instead of casting down what God has done in you and what you can be for others, you must now labor. We must now labor to see how we can better serve that role rather than denigrating it. Let us be more aware of how to build one another up in the faith. Our second point is the duties that are given. Paul gives Philemon a few instructions on how he should now act towards the newly converted Onesimus. First, he's supposed to forgive him. This runaway slave had done much damage to Philemon and his family, but he must now forgive him. Philemon had been given much grace by God. He had been freely forgiven his sins. Should he, now, should he not now freely forgive Onesimus? The devil labors among us, dear congregation. The devil labors among us in an ironic way to cause Christians, to cause us to be miserly about grace and mercy which we have received from God. That's what he wants. Yet, in Matthew 18, Jesus tells us a parable about a servant that owed a vast sum of money to a king. It'd be the equivalent of saying a bajillion, gajillion dollars. It's an innumerable amount. Something that could never in a thousand, thousand lifetimes be paid back. He was unable to pay this debt, obviously. And so the king said he would sell this servant and his family into slavery until the debt could be paid off. But the servant begged, please have mercy on me. I'll pay thee what I owe. Just give me time. Well, the king was moved with compassion and loosed him, set him free, and forgave him the debt, verse 27. But what did the servant do? He then went out and found a fellow servant who owed him hardly anything, a very small debt, and he threatened to sell this servant, his fellow servant, into slavery with his family until the debt was paid. And in like manner, that servant then begged him to have mercy. Please have mercy on me. But he would not. Rather, he sold him into slavery with his family. Now, when the king heard of it, what did he say? O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? It's verses 32 and 33. The king then did what? He cast the servant into prison and had him tortured until the debt was paid. What does Jesus apply from this? To us. In verse 35, he says, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Christians have a duty. We have a duty to be forgiving and compassionate. Why? Because God has been compassionate to us and has forgiven us our eternal debt, paying it in his own blood. That's a continuous theme we're going to see in Philemon. That the grounding of Christian ethics, Christian living, Christian love, 
And unity is what Jesus Christ has done for Christians. Philemon is pleaded with by this reality. Christians ought to forgive even their enemies, right? How much more their own own brethren, their brothers and sisters in Christ? Previously, Onesimus was unprofitable, but now he is a brother in Christ, Paul says. Receive him as your own bosom kindred. How often for us is it hard to forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ? We must forgive. It's hard to forgive, but forgive we must. We must remember that this is not an option. This is a command of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a suggestion of positive thinking gurus. The next thing he's supposed to do with Onesimus is receive him. Not only shall he forgive Onesimus, but Philemon is to warmly receive him back into the church and his own home as a restored servant. Paul writes this in verse 12. I have sent Onesimus back to you again. Thou therefore receive him. That is, mine own bowels. Again, my own heart. That's verse 12. It's as if he said, as I love him in Christ, so too you must love him and receive him back into your home and into your heart. True. Before he was a Christian, Onesimus was unprofitable. But now he is most profitable. And shall serve Philemon... Not as a man-pleaser, but as a God-pleaser. Onesimus will not be only a physical blessing as a servant, but a spiritual blessing as a brother. And that's the tie that binds. That's the union and unity that we have in Christ. Wherever we come from, whatever vocation we have, whatever circumstance we are in, we are united together in Christ. Paul writes this in verses 15 and 16. For perhaps thou shouldest, for perhaps he therefore departed for a season, that thou shouldest receive him forever. Not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, especially to me. And how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So Onesimus fled as an unprofitable servant, but now he shall return as a faithful brother in Christ. Before, he was a slave that Philemon owned here on earth in this life. But now, he is to be owned forever as a dearly beloved brother in the Lord. And Paul points out how much better this is. That he'll be a, he is and shall be a co-inheritor with thee in Christ. Philemon had more reason now than ever to receive and cherish Onesimus. And this teaches us, dear congregation, to think more highly of our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Think more highly. Think more highly than we typically do. Why? Because we're going to spend eternity with one another, with all Christians. And we'll be in perfect joy, perfect peace, and perfect unity. Therefore, we have to labor while we're on this life to do so also. Paul goes on to demonstrate for Philemon what kind of Christian behavior he should be doing, what kind of Christian behavior he should have towards Onesimus when he returns. Paul leads by example. If Philemon received the Apostle Paul as a brother, then he should likewise count his old slave Onesimus as a brother. So he says in verse 17, it's as if he said, if you truly love me and consider me a brother in Christ, and a fellow laborer in the gospel, then I exhort you to receive Onesimus, as if you were receiving me. If you receive me, then receive him. In fact, Paul goes further in demonstrating Christian charity. He tells Philemon in verse 18, If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee aught, anything, put that on mine account. Whatever financial loss was accrued, by, by Onesimus leaving, whatever Philemon had suffered financially, Paul says, I'll repay it. I'll repay it. This is the level of Christian love we ought to have for one another. This is what Paul is laying out. Of course, I doubt that Philemon would have accepted such an offer. The apostle, Paul, is languishing in prison and beseeching you to show Christian grace, which you already want to do, and now you're going to say, 
Well, yeah, I'll take it. I'll take your money, Paul. I doubt that he would have done such a thing. However, the lesson is still there. The lesson is still there. To write off losses suffered by one another. With prudence, we should act likewise towards one another. We ought to readily accept wrong, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, when he says there's arguments among you and some of you even take each other to court. He says, it's better to be wronged than to make Christ look like a fool. Why would you not rather be wronged, he says. And so Philemon's living this out. And Paul's urging him to remember to do that. Hey, it's better to be wronged. Don't sue. Why would you sue and make Jesus look ridiculous? Rather be wronged. God is your defender and your shield and your avenger. Notice the grounds by which Paul urges these duties. We've touched on this briefly. Paul grounds his exhortation in Christian love and in Christian duty rather than his apostolic authority. That's important. He had every right to simply command Philemon on what to do. But instead, he chooses a more effective and Christian route. Paul beseeches him by the mercies of God in Christ rather than commanding him. He writes in verses 8 and 9, Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such and one as Paul the aged and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Dear congregation, it's as though he had said, though it is well within my rights and my office to simply command you what to do and to do what is right, yet I lay that right aside and I plead with you in love to heed my words, not simply as an apostle endowed with the authority of Christ himself, but more so as an aged Christian brother who is suffering and has been faithful even to the point of being imprisoned for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a much more effective means of persuading someone. Our callings and our vocations in life, dear congregation, may sometimes place us in authority over other Christians. But it is always better, hear me now, to appeal to our common love in Jesus Christ than to our given authority. We ought to exhort one another unto greater service to God in all of our callings. And there is no greater impetus to serving God than Christ's love for us, which we all share. Paul presses the, fo- the point further in verses 19 and 20. Albeit, I do not say to thee how thou owest me even thine own self besides. Yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels in the Lord. Having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say. So he urges Philemon. He urges him by his own love to Paul himself. That he owes his very Christian profession to the Apostle Paul's faithfulness. You wouldn't even be a Christian had I not been faithful, Philemon. It's as though he said, I have begotten thee as well as an SMS unto the Lord. If thou truly lovest me, Make my joy full by receiving thy servant Onesimus. Nothing fills my heart with more joy than Christians dwelling in love and unity. And this I know thou wilt do, O Philemon. For I am confident of thy obedience towards God, and I know that thou art willing to do all that is good in the sight of God. So he appeals to Philemon's Christian character and their common love for God. Last point briefly, the applications which we should take away. What do we take away from a text like this? How do we apply this to our lives? It's a very practical letter, but we can go even deeper and draw out Christ-centered, Christ-exalting applications for how we should live. What inferences should we draw out? I have three, briefly. First, we are the runaway servant. We are the slave who has run away and rebelled against our master. Master. Onesimus sinned against his master Philemon. His master was loving and faithful, but he hated him and rebelled against him. So too, all men, Christian or not, are by nature and by creation 
subjects of God. They have God as their master and their Lord. But all men have gone out of the way, Romans 3.12 says. They've abandoned God and they fled from him. Onesimus was at one time unprofitable to his master, just like the Bible says we all had become unprofitable to God. And it can be said of all men that there is none that doeth good, no, not one, Romans 3.12. By nature, all men are sinful, rebels against God. We wage an active and hateful war against our holy creator by nature. Unless someone is born again by the sovereign free, and supernatural power of God, all men will remain in that state and be cast into hell. But even as saved Christians, we often rebel against God, don't we? We often are the runaway slave. We often refuse to surrender every aspect of our life to God who owns us. We forget that we are owned by God. We are not our own. We've been purchased with a price, the Bible tells us. Even the price of his own blood. We often, like Jonah, run away from God's call. We flee our master. Our flesh wars against our, nurse, our new spirit, even as Christians. And until we are glorified with Christ at our death, we are continually assaulted on every side by our own besetting sins. Though saved, though redeemed, though regenerated, we still abandon our master on a daily basis in one way or another. And from the depths of our broken hearts, we daily cry out as Christians, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Romans seven twenty four. Christ is the greater master who receives us. Who receives us. That's a second application. We have no reason to doubt, as Paul did not doubt, that Onesimus' master, Philemon, warmly received him back into the family, into the church. All Christian character is but a dim reflection of Christ's character. Philemon's loving reception of the repentant Onesimus lays before us a picture of Christ's reception of us as Christians. So, dear congregation... Though we have rebelled and strayed from God, yet Christ, by his by grace through faith, restores us unto himself and warmly receives us, not simply as restored servants, but as children. Much better. Romans 5.1, Apostle Paul says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Like the father in the parable, prodigal son. We are received back as the prodigal son was. We're, we're met with shoes for our feet, a ring for our finger, a robe for our back, and a warm, loving embrace from our Heavenly Father in Christ. So Philemon's reception of his sinful slave is simply a dim mirror in which we behold God's loving reception of us in Christ. Let us therefore make quick work, dear congregation, of returning unto God daily, he is always ready and always willing to forgive us and receive us in Christ. Always, no matter what we've done. Therefore, we can, through faith in Christ, as Hebrews 4.16 says, come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Last, Christ is the greater Paul interceding for us. Paul acts as a mediator between Philemon and Onesimus. He intercedes for Onesimus, beseeching Philemon by the mercy of Christ and the new faithfulness of Onesimus. But we know that Christ is our mediator. Paul's character as mediator here is simply a dim reflection. Both at our salvation and every moment of every day of our lives as Christians, Christ Jesus stands before the Father as our mediator. As our mediator. Another place, remember Paul writes, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, 
to be testified in due time. We come to God through him. And through him, God views us. God views us. He died for our sins. And through faith in him, we are united to him and are seen as Christ's own righteousness, dear congregation. We're seen as Christ's own righteousness before the Father. You don't stand in your own righteousness. You don't stand in your own sin. But as a Christian, bought and purchased and paid for by Christ, you stand before him in Christ's own righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Daily and moment by moment, Christ's blood and Christ's righteousness are before the throne of God on our behalf. Our sins are washed away. But we're not simply left morally neutral, are we? No. We're given something so much greater. Christ's righteousness. If you want to know, as a Christian, how God views you, by grace through faith, you are Jesus Christ. You are Jesus Christ. Whatever you attribute to him, you're saying about yourself and how wicked you are all the time, that's what you're saying about Jesus Christ. Because you stand before God as Jesus Christ's righteousness. He's absolved your sins, expiated them, and been a propitiation on your behalf, paying for your sins and giving you justification as a righteous person before God. This is a cause for great joy. So dear congregation, in closing, in this brief but rich letter that we read through, we have seen a passionate argument for true Christian living. We love others because God first loved us. We forgive others because God, in Christ, forgives us. We count no wrongs against us from our brothers because God counts none of our wrongs against us. Let us therefore serve quickly and faithfully in true humility, our great God and Savior. And let us dwell together in Christian unity, dear believers. Our God and our salvation command it. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we once again come before thee. Lord, please apply thy word to our hearts. Let us not leave it here, but write it upon the tablets of our hearts, O God. Help us to see Christ and his love and his mercy towards us. Let it be a motivating factor, the motivating factor for all that we do for thee and for others. In Jesus' name, amen.